So James, um, we're entering into this discussion of the theology of Marxism. And I just talked through, you know, a lot of the different issues of this kind of fake religious paradigm that's out there right now. And it's interesting because I, th I think in your history and, and what research and things that you've been through is that you had a lot of experience in that yourself before you and I even met. But now as you're seeing this, and especially, how many of you here are uh, Christians that are in the audience? Okay. So what would you see from someone who is from outside of the community looking in? What is it that you've actually seen in the last three years since you became familiar with what's happening? Well, in the Christian community. Yeah. I mean, you, you really kind of hit it upon, hit upon it. Um, the hard part is it's really was looking back at it now, 2014 through 2018, where a lot of the tracks were laid. Yeah. And I use that metaphor so that I can say that what I'm seeing now is that the trains are being run along the tracks that were laid 2014 through 2018. So um, it's a very interesting issue because a lot of the churches are at least nominally conservative. And uh, I guess they're, they're uh, conservative in name only, maybe. But they want to maintain that appearance. And so what you're seeing is it's kind of like scrambling, mm. that they've been identified. I mean, what Jarvis Williams said in his minute and a half or whatever that was of intersectional salad, uh, nailing every single possible thing. With, and it, like I spoke to you about right after you finished your talk, like you said, what did he say? And I want everybody, lean forward, I want everybody to feel this religion of pathos. He wants you to feel it. Don't think. Mr. O'Fallon asked you to think about 75 times in that lecture. Jarvis Williams wants you to feel it, right? And so they were running those trains, and then all of a sudden they got caught. And so what I'm seeing now is this kind of scramble. I'm seeing this scramble to kind of, how do they pick up the, the, it's like they have their toy and somebody smashed it on the floor. It may have been us, I don't know. And they are scrambling to try to pick up the pieces of the toy and pretend that they're not picking up the pieces of the toy and still play with it. It, it. It's a very weird thing. So they're kind of backing off from that, but they're still using the exact same language. They're still talking about the same things. Um, they may not come out and say, you know, exactly like, oh, well, I am a critical race theorist now right. because then they'd be out. But we just saw this controversy this week where it's, well, we have to consider this LGBTQ thing for the whole Southern Baptist Convention, this guidepost controversy that just flared up and apparently I got dragged I only know about this because I got dragged into it because apparently how dare you talk to me and not include groomers right. also and I was like don't use me as a prop for your groomers so what I'm seeing is them trying to find back doors to get the same thing in that they uh, got caught kind mm -hmm. of bringing in through the front door um, and have been kind of called out for. And you're seeing a lot of kind of these little institutional games to keep the people in power and protecting. But the main thing that I actually see that keeps that going is exactly what you said as well. well we have to be winsome. We have to be kind. We have to be nice. And, and I've dipped into my, my, I know we're in Arizona, don't worry, I'm not confused. My Utah, <laughs> my Utah, your northern neighbor is too damn nice. And they're getting niced right into tyranny because they won't say no. And I'm not gonna about to preach some theology to you, but when Jesus said that the meek shall inherit the earth, meek doesn't mean laying down. It means taking action when you know you're supposed to. And otherwise, keeping your hands to yourself. So what I'm seeing is that there's this play being done there where it's, well, don't name the names like you said. Don't call them out. They're still your brother. They're not. 
They're not even Christian. They've adopted massive elements, whether they realize it or not, of a new theology. If they don't realize it, they need to be rebuked. They need to be corrected, and hopefully they get back on the right path. If they do realize it, then they're just a problem, and they're not even a Christian. Because when you put up hermetic on the screen, hermeticism, which is a word I know a lot of you haven't heard, um, that's a mystery religion going back thousands of years that has spawned a bunch of heretical cults throughout all of Christian history. And what they're trying to bring in is that. So what I see is this kind of scramble to bring that same stuff in through the back doors, where the front door has now been barred to them, and then they're trying to pretend they're the ones barring the door, and then people who know what they're doing it are like, well... We can't say anything mean about them. We have, to, we have to remember they're still our brothers and sisters. And it's this kind of, what I told, when I, when I spoke in Utah about a month ago, because they told me that the problem is how nice they all are, what I said was, there's a big difference between, this is the thing with the meekness, there's a big difference between niceness and enablement. You're not being nice or kind to somebody and enabling them to do something harmful. You're not being, like, if the, I mean, we use the language of enable, enablement to talk about addiction a lot. You're not being kind to an addict to facilitate their problem. If you go to Al-Anon or whatever they're going to tell you, you have to learn how to detach your emotions so that you can watch them hit rock bottom, because that's the only way they're going to make a correction. Maybe it's not that bad in all these cases, but if you're being nice and unwilling to re rebuke or call out or point out or explain or name the names. These are the people doing this. This is how they're doing it. This is why they're doing it. This is what I know of it. And let's have a conversation about this. Let's get this out in the open. Then you're facilitating or you're enabling. And I see an awful lot of that from the so-called guard. I see a lot of distraction and yeah. um, word games as well, of course. You know, oh, it doesn't mean that. He didn't mean that. He just meant that. You know, and so there's a lot of these kind of positioning games to, again, remain in the positions that they've been abusing so they can keep sliding in through side doors well, they got stopped from ringing in the front door. That's what I see looking, right. looking in. I see the church is in a lot of trouble. I, I, honestly, I told you back in 2018, early in the year, I remember we were having a phone call and I laughed at you. And I was like, dude, the church is just going to split. You're not going to stop it. Right. It's just going to break because these people will not be compromised with. And eventually, the other side is going to, the conservative side is going to hit a point where they can, they can take no more. And they're just going to say, all right, then the convention's going to have a big, giant Generation X divorce. Mm -hmm. Now, some people had asked me during the break uh, that I was referring to Mott and Bailey, and I want to go back over that and allow James to, to kind of give a full explanation, but when I was leading tours in, uh, in the UK, especially in York, there was a tower that was right across the street from our Hilton Hotel that we unfortunately used. But uh, it, it, right across the street, there was the tower there, and you had the perfect example of the Mott and the Bailey. And so what you would see is that when the forces that were kept inside of the, the Mott itself had the opportunity, and when they, when they saw an opportunity would open, they would come charge out and start doing battle in the Bailey, if you will, of getting out of the Mott, out of the, the defensive position, and taking offense, and trying to take back ground so they didn't have to be holed up. But then, if the other forces that were outside started to take over, they'd run back into the Mott itself and take it to very defensive position. Now, when we discuss Mott and Bailey, we're discussing that from uh, a position of a rhetorical technique. Uh, can you explain a little, in a little bit more detail exactly what the Mott and Bailey is and how those 
that are using this are using it as a as a way of manipulating the conversation. Yeah, it's a, it's the same two step a kid does when he gets caught because um, there's the thing he was really doing, and then there's the BS he tries to pass off on you when you catch him. And that's what it is. It's the simplest explanation. The Mott and Bailey comes from as as you were just saying, Mike, um, a castle arrangement, kind of a medieval fortress where you have this kind of central tower, usually up on a hill. You have a moat around a big field, maybe a mile. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, um, Minas Tirith is a mot in the Pelennor field as it's Bailey. It's this protected farmland with a kind of a hedge wall around it, but it's not a very good defense or a moat around it. And then you have a tower that's virtually impregnable that's the mot. So on the Bailey, you have good farmland, you have the opportunity to build villages and shops and, you know, homes and all of these things. And in the Bailey, or sorry, in the mot, you basically wouldn't want to live there, but nobody can take it over. Right? right, it's stone. It's probably stinky. It's probably dark. It has little slits for windows where you can shoot arrows out. It's got places where you can throw rocks or boiling oil, like I saw in Italy, and one there. Uh, I was like, "What's that lip on the side of the the wall for?" And it's like when you dump the boiling oil, it splashes. And it's like, "Oof, yeah, <laughs> these guys were hardcore." Um, but you wouldn't want to live in there. So the idea is that when that get that Bailey, where you want to live and you have your township or whatever, gets attacked. The people can go hide in the castle. They can rain arrows and rocks and boiling oil down on the invaders, mm -hmm. and eventually they'll go away. So when you get caught doing some BS, like a little kid, like, you know, he's get, grabbing uh, a couple of cookies out of the cookie jar, and you're like, were you getting a cookie out of the cookie jar? He was like, he knew he was getting two. So he's like, I wasn't getting a cookie. <laughs> and he retreated into this more defensible position. No, I wasn't getting a cookie, right? And so it's that kind of BS story. So what you'll see then is, you know, wow, you're really trying to make, say, the gospel or a school or this corporation um, absolutely, you know, activist-oriented. It's doing intersectional this. It's grooming that. It's, you know, full-blown Pride Month this. And you say, well, yeah, we see what you're doing. And then they come back, and they, the magic word is, it's just. Right. It's just we're trying to mm -hmm. show kids a different way of life in case they happen to have not seen it and they don't know that it's okay to be gay. It's just this, it's just that. And they reduce it down to something extremely defensible that nobody could be against. It's just ending racism. It's just being an anti-racist. It's just trying to make sure everybody stays safe, whatever it happens to be. So it's this super defensible thing. And this actually, the name, identifying this castle arrangement with a rhetorical strategy was named by a philosopher named Nicholas Shackle. Um, in a paper in 2005 called The Vacuity, which means emptiness, of postmodern methodology. And he basically said that literally every argument within postmodern philosophy, as far as he could figure out, boiled down to doing this, that you have two interpretations of everything, and you go back and forth between them, where one achieves an activist agenda, and then one is the, it's just this super defensible thing. It's, we're just saying that black lives matter. We're just saying that. This isn't a neo-Marxist organization burning down cities. We're just saying that black lives actually matter. It's the, this is the kind of two-step that they're playing where there's a absolutely defensible position nobody could disagree with or it's very difficult to disagree with. And then the thing that they're actually doing. We're just trying to show kids, you know, that everything's not just the, you know, straight white bread nuclear family. We're trying to show them that sometimes it's okay to have two moms or two dads. Sometimes some people are different and they might feel that way and they don't have any representation that lets them see it. We're just trying to make sure those kids don't fall through the cracks. When in fact it's drag queen story time. 
When in fact I saw right. this week that there's drag queen preacher in the Methodist church who said that God is just what was it? God is just fake or something? Like, God, but queerness is actually divine. That's a little bit of a different project. It's a little bit of a different project. So that's the Mott and Bailey. It's the, the, a formal name for it would be strategic equivocation, if we wanted to use big words. You're equivocating, you're dancing between two meanings of things, two interpretations of what's going on, strategically, so that you can continue to push your agenda. The idea is, when somebody's looking, hands to yourself. I just watched a video I saw on the internet, I laughed at it, I think I, I even maybe shared it, so stupid. There's this magpie, which is like a crow, that's partly white, bouncing around chasing this cat, and every time the cat's kind of walking away, kind of quick, and every time the cat turns around, the magpie stands real still. <laughs> and then the second the cat starts walking, the magpie's hopping around behind, cat stands real still. Uh, sorry, cat turns, the magpie stands real still. And it does this, like the cat never figures it out and just goes off on the bird. That's the idea. Is that, so the, the magpie is clearly harassing the cat, wants to keep harassing the cat, but every time the cat looks, just stand in there, <laughs> that's retreating into the mott. Just stand in here where chasing it with its angry beak that it could peck its eyes out with is the bailey or chasing it out of the area, the activist agenda that it's trying to push. So that's, I think, like 11 ways to explain the mountain bailey. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that I would say is that um, really what you can take a look at is that it happens both in the macro and the micro. So in the macro, uh, I would say between the years of about 2010 was really when it started, but especially 2014 um, through till about 2019 for uh, the evangelical church and as well. Hey, when I say this, I, I, I don't want you to think that, oh, well, this is just happening in the church and so forth and evangelicals and reform. No, this is happening in everything at the same time, all at once. Everything, everywhere, all at once. It's happening in every denomination. It's happening in every parachurch ministry. It's happening in every religion at the same time. We were contacted after we put out, uh, there was a rather famous video that, that James and I did back in 2019 called the Trojan Horse Series. We did one called Deconstructing Communities. And the reason that I called it Deconstructing Communities as opposed to Deconstructing the Church was because I knew that this was applicable to everybody. And one of the first uh, other religions to contact James after we released that was Zen Buddhists saying, hey, that thing that you did about what was happening in the Southern Baptist, it's happening here. It's the same thing. You know, and so that's what's happened is that many different denominations, many different faiths have contacted us. I know there's people here that are, are, are not evangelical uh, Christians that are, are coming up to me and telling me, yeah, it's happening with us too. So we have to understand that we have a common challenge. And what that common challenge is this. Basically, it's a parasite that has come. And it's come to all of us and to all of our organizations. And what it's done it, in a very vampire-like fashion, it's come along and it stuck its fangs into every single neck of every single community of, of faith, of affinity, of, you know, whether it be you're part of a, a knitting group or a hiking group or whatever it may be, uh, Boy Scouts of America, etc. And it's dug its fangs in, it's killed the host, and then it's making it alive again in its own image, if you will. So let me elaborate on that since you bring up the vampire. It's, I'm not going to get weird with this, I promise. But <laughs> the vampire, the legend, or one of the, one of the legends of how vampires work, they bite the neck, they drain the blood, and then one of two things can happen, depending on whatever story, whatever magic, whatever is involved in it. Either the thing turns and becomes a vampire, or it dies. Now, from the perspective of the vampire, it doesn't care. 
which right. one that which one it is. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there's different magical processes or whatever supposedly that makes it do whichever one. This is the same thing with this. It latches onto a church. If your church converts and preaches their gospel or whatever, great, they win. If your church dies, that was a piece of the resistance that's gone, great, they win. They don't care whether the thing survives or turns. Right. And now when it turns, if let's play vampire again. If Dracula goes and bites the neck of a young woman, does she turn into Dracula? No, she's now a young woman vampire. If she goes and bites some, you know, skinny boy, does it turn into like some like Arnold Schwarzenegger with fangs? No, it's a skinny boy vampire permanently forever, right? And so if it bites into your church, your church is still going to look kind of like an evangelical church or a Catholic church or a synagogue or whatever. It's going to bite into it. It's still going to look like that. It's going to use the trappings of that, but it's going to do the other thing. It's going to be a vampire. It's going to do the social justice gospel in the words of the evangelical gospel. It's going to do that in the words of the Catholic catechesis. It's going to do that in the language of the college or university that it's colonized, or in the language of Coca-Cola's corporate boardroom mm -hmm. speak, or in the language of big finance or whatever else. If the vampire bites and turns an organization, it still on the outside looks like kind of a weird decrepit version of itself. But it's not itself anymore, it's become a vampire. And so the vampire is a really weirdly good metaphor for this. It also turns out, in vampire lore, it can't come in until you open the door. Right. You have to invite it in. Right. And there's your hegemony versus infiltration and counter hegemony program as well. You have to let it in and then it'll rot your thing out from the inside. And if it dies, whoops, resistance gone. And if it, if, if it turns, Great, we've got another soldier and institution in our, in our army and our project to make more of these things until everybody and everything is one of these things, at which point it'll work this time. Right. So you see what I'm saying? So this, this has happened then, and I think the period, we, we started to become very, well, I shouldn't say we, you started to become very aware of it probably from about uh, 2018 till now, right? That's when you first started kind of getting wind of some of this. Uh, when I was trying to warn everybody about it from 2013 to about 2017, uh, I mean, even really good leaders, uh, they wouldn't listen to me. Now, I wasn't just saying these things within the context of the evangelical church. I was also saying them within the context of corporations that I was involved with as well. And I saw the road that they were going down, not just with critical race theory, but with other ideologies as well, especially something that James will be uh, addressing later, which will be sustainability. Uh, but it all kind of comes back to the same thing. But between the, eight, the, the years of about 2008 to about 2019 was the woke renaissance. I mean, that's when they were Bailey all the time, where they were having giant conferences. Does anybody remember the MLK 50 conference that they had in Memphis back in 2018? Uh, that was the, the 50th anniversary of the death of, of Martin Luther King. And what they did is they brought in everybody that was dipped in wokeness uh, from Eric Mason, Russell Moore, Beth Moore, everybody that was willing to stand on stage, D.A. Carson, etc. And they preached the gospel of vengeance. Uh, they preached the gospel of, of retribution and so forth as opposed to the gospel of grace. You had T4G right after that, which is again was just a woke fest. Um, and everybody was doing the same thing at the same time, just like what you saw with the news reporters. It was the same thing. It was everywhere. And there was no one that was willing to stand against it because if you stood against this, you were standing against all the major leaders 
of just about every denomination, seminary, and parachurch ministry. So it was, for me, it was Michael O'Fallon contra mundum, you know, <laughs> Michael O'Fallon against the world um, in many ways. So I had to convince other guys, and thankfully there were men, uh, Josh Bice, James White, Tom Askell, Bodie Bauckham, uh, that eventually came to the table. John MacArthur then came, um, and we got a group together that composed the statement on social justice and the gospel. But I would say that that statement was defanged by the, by the time it came out. It actually had a lot more meat to it before it came to its final, uh, final version. And had it had more fangs to it at the time, I think that it could have been a lot more effective. So we got to that point, and then as James was talking about a second ago, uh, it's just became the word, it became the phrase, is because all of a sudden, now it's like, well, that's, we weren't saying that, we were saying this. Whatever they were saying in 2017, when they were just on the woke evangelist, at the woke crusade, all of a sudden, now that there was a response to it, then all of a sudden there started to be this pushback, and well, we don't mean that, we mean this. Yeah, we just want a place where everybody feels like they belong. Right. Which belonging means positive affirmation attached to inclusion. So you're not allowed to exclude people who might feel excluded because of some systemic power imbalance. That's inclusion. Inclusion doesn't mean including people. It means making sure people who are easily offended don't get offended according to the rules that the most offended people set. So that's censorship <laughs> and purges is what that actually means. Belonging means that you have to make them feel like they belong. They're not just included. They feel like they belong there. So when they put up some, you know... Somebody offers some dumb idea, you have to, oh, that's a great idea. You have to make them feel like they belong. Oh, wow, that's exactly what engineers would think. That's a great thing. You have to make them feel like they belong in the engineering program by telling them that their dumb idea was great. So you perhaps don't correct their, um, their mistakes. And I hear this from college students all over the country. A young black man reached out to me frustrated. He had just finished his master's degree about two years ago. And he reached out to me and said, I figured out in my master's program that they weren't correcting my work, so I started putting mistakes in on purpose to find out, and they didn't correct those either. I was still getting you know, high A's on everything, but I was doing things wrong on purpose, and they didn't call me out. And so now he's like, it's great, because I go try to, I have this master's degree, and I go, I have my certificate or whatever, I go apply for a job, and they're like, let's see your portfolio, and it's underdeveloped, and I can't get a job. So they've actually cheated me. He was great at sarcasm, by the way. And so this was, this belonging thing is a disaster in the making. I've heard from people in software engineering firms saying that for belonging, you know, if anybody's in any underrepresented group, whatever that happens to mean in that institutional example, then we don't correct when they make mistakes on their software because we don't want to make them feel like they're not good programmers. But this could be software that runs a nuclear reactor at some point. Mm -hmm. It could be software that runs the security on your iPhone. It could be all kinds of software. And it turns out that if you actually follow this to its most horrendous endpoint, not necessarily its logical endpoint, it's in fact strictly illogical endpoint, it's power-driven endpoint, you know, very famously, when Lenin came out to speak, everybody stood up and clapped, and they clapped, and they clapped, and they clapped, and they clapped, and 10 minutes later they still clapped, because everybody knew the first person to sit down and stop clapping was gonna get shot because they made Lenin feel like he didn't belong. We just want to make a place where everybody feels like they belong. We just want to make a place where everyone feels like they belong. You see, I went to University of Oklahoma a few months ago and sat down with the president of the university. He gave me a half an hour. He wanted to talk to me. 
And I sat down with him for half an hour and we chatted and I laid all this out about what his DEI program really was, what he was achieving, and that he was going to be remembered as the person who destroyed Oklahoma. <laughs> and do you know what he said to me after that whole like 12 minute spiel about what DEI really represents and what he's doing? And he smiled and he politicianed. Well, we just want to make a campus where everybody feels like they belong. And I said, Joe, don't give me that word. You know I know what it means. Yep. But that's the only word he gave me. And he kept giving it to me. We've got to make sure it's a campus where everybody feels like they belong. So that's another example of this exact same thing. So what are you going to hear at your churches? You're going to hear, we just want to make sure we have a church where everybody feels like they belong. Right. That's like their new word or one of their new words because people haven't cottoned on to that word yet. They haven't figured out that belonging is just inclusion plus. They're all skittish on inclusion. They all know that diversity, equity, inclusion, something weird's going on there. So now we're going to talk about justice and belonging. So tell, tell me about, let's talk just for a second about diversity, equity, inclusion, because that's the thing that actually came up. I think that everybody saw what happened from, did anybody see what happened with guideposts this past week? And uh, those of you that follow me on Twitter know that I responded immediately. Uh, and I, I responded differently than I think a lot of Baptist leaders uh, responded because they immediately wanted to attach themselves to the fact that Guidepost was, was participating in Pride Month and they said, well, you shouldn't feel ashamed to work for a homosexual you know, corporation. I said, that's not the point. So the point is, is what they're, they're actually pushing by saying that they are allying and that they are for diversity, equity, inclusion is the fact that what they're actually bringing in are a lot of Marxist concepts into the whole process of what they're saying that they're allying themselves for and why they are doing that. So can you tell me, because a lot of people hear the words diversity mm -hmm. and equity mm -hmm. and inclusion, mm -hmm. and those are very soft or nice words. It's like, mm -hmm. how could you, James Lindsay, how could you be opposed to diversity and equity and inclusion? Watch me, Mr. O'Fallon. Watch yes. me. <laughs> um, so the first thing you need to understand, and you already know this viscerally if you haven't heard it, if you've never heard this, this is an old aphorism. I get credited with it all the time because I started popularizing it. I definitely didn't make this up. Communists, Marxists, whatever word you want to use, they share your vocabulary, but they don't share your dictionary. Right. They say the same words you say, but they mean something different, just like we just said with belonging. So let's start with equity. What is equity? So we go back into the public administration documentation where social equity theory was first invented. So what, what's it defined as? Well, they say, well, we have to look at the conditions of uh, equality and equity. We have to see that they're actually different concepts. We have to pull those apart a little bit. And so what do they say? They say, well, equality is when citizens A and B are equal. They don't give you a whole, that's kind of a circular definition, but we'll let them slide. Because then they tell you what equity is, because we all really kind of know what that means. They go on to say, equity is when shares are adjusted so citizens A and B are made equal. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so... Equity means adjusting shares so that citizens or groups are made equal. To do that, you need an administer. Remember, this came up in an administrative state uh, public management kind of field. And so, I mean, literally, that's where it came up, public administration. And uh, at a conference dedicated to the concept of the administrative state uh, is where this began with a guy named H. George Fredrickson. And... Um, you now have an administered state, therefore, you have some kind of an institutional body or the state itself or some blend thereof that is going to administer a situation so that shares are adjusted so that citizens A and B are made equal. 
Well, there's an older name for that if we're just adjusting economic shares and not other types of shares. An economy where there's an administrating, let's say, uh, council, which in, in Russian is pronounced Soviet, um, <laughs> you have an administering council that's going to redistribute shares so that citizens are made equal, has an older name, socialism. Mm -hmm. And I mean that with a capital S, socialism, like the Soviet-style one. Mm -hmm. Equity means the same thing. This isn't a hard thing to parse apart. It means literally the same thing. So if they're in favor of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the equity is the key piece. That's the goal. Diversity and inclusion are the means. Mm -hmm. They're the means to that end. Equity is socialism. That's the goal. So if they're bringing in DEI, they're bringing in socialism, which we're going to learn for the rest of the, the workshop here that has a very religious uh, backbone to it, a very firmly theological backbone in a crackpot religion that destroys everything it touches, literally. Right. What are diversity and inclusion? Well, it turns out, you remember when Michael said in his, in his lecture a little bit ago that there's the hiring aspect and the firing aspect? Ha ha! Diversity, you can't, in the United States, as it turns out, thanks to the 14th Amendment and civil rights law, you cannot hire explicitly based on the basis of various protected characteristics, such as race, gender, sex, sexuality, etc. You cannot hire or fire, in fact, based on those things. That violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So what do they do to get around it? Well, they tell you. You just read their papers. They tell you. They're documents. These are policy documents, not like academic dork stuff. And what they tell you is, we can't, they say it explicitly, the Texas, uh, University of Texas at Austin, in fact, with their equity plan, explained, they say this over and over and over again because some lawyer told them they had to, so they give away the game. We cannot hire based on race, sex, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, we hire based on expertise in diversity. You read Ibram Kendi, who says we're going to install a department of anti-racism in the government that's going to work as a dictatorship. He doesn't say that word, but he describes a dictatorship. If you read it, it's one paragraph. It's not hard to read. Um, and he says that the goal is to achieve equity and how is it going to be done? It's by hiring no, no political appointees, he says, but by bringing in experts on racism, as he defines it. In other words, people who are experts in diversity. Who do you think those people are? They're the people who went to college and got a degree in social justice crap. You are not an expert in diversity by virtue of being black, because if you're Larry Elder, you're the black face of white supremacy. Right. If you're uh, Dave Chappelle and you tell a joke about alphabet people or trans people, they will write articles about you saying you told the joke from a position of white supremacy and white privilege. Dave Chappelle, who literally wrote that joke like 20 years ago. You are not an expert in diversity based on what you look like or who you have sex with or what your genitals are. You're an expert in diversity if you've swallowed the Kool-Aid. And if you will promote and enforce the Kool-Aid. In other words, you're, there's an old name for that too. Equity, old name. Socialism. Diversity, old name. Commissar. Mm -hmm. Who enforces the Soviet policy in the uh, organization or institution and the, the people that it has power over. That's what diversity actually means. It means experts in diversity, which means experts in diversity theory, which means commissars who enforce the diversity, equity, inclusion gospel. Well, what's inclusion? I just said. It's making sure that people who are considered to be in these protected classes, because they have to be wrapped in bubble wrap to survive life, can't ever feel like they've been insulted or offended enough right. as adults 
So you have to therefore make sure that nothing that reproduces the power dynamics that they are said to experience in the world that the expert in diversity knows all about and believes order society is a fundamental organizing principles of society. You have to make sure that anything that reinforces the, that is excluded or removed to protect their feelings and make sure they feel included or not excluded. What does that mean? Well, obviously you can't have people going around at the, it's just we don't want people to say the N-word. Well, you don't want people saying racial slurs or saying, you know, right. flat out racist, sexist, homophobic, et cetera stuff, especially at work. You want people to use professional speech, except that's an article of white supremacy, so I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> right. Professionalism is on the list. You're not supposed to do that. That's white supremacy culture, um, according to the Smithsonian. Right. Um, but anyway, not to make it lost in a joke, you're going to remove speech that might make those people uncomfortable according to the diversity expert or according to the most offendable ones, not according to Larry Elder because he's a black face of white supremacy. Don't, right. don't forget. What makes him feel bad doesn't matter, like calling him the black face of white supremacy on the front page of the LA Times. Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter. Okay? So you remove speech that the diversity officer doesn't want. That's what it means. So that's called censorship. In the words of our friend Herbert Marcuse, the leading... Uh, critical Marxist or critical theorist of the 1960s, you also are going to have, in addition to censorship, you don't even want people to be thinking that stuff. So you put them through all these weird seminars and training so they, their unconscious biases are stopped, so you pre-censor them. In other words, what that really means in practice is you make sure they're so scared to say anything that they check themselves and you don't have to check them. Mm -hmm. Okay? So you have censorship and pre-censorship, but it also means, well, you remember that time that Kevin Hart made a, he's black, right? Remember that time he made a gay joke? That was homophobic. Get rid of him from his job for something he said 15 years ago because it reminds us of that thing. There's a rock that is formerly in, on the campus of the University of Wisconsin at Madison that in some student doing a, I think, doing a project into the history of the rock, it was this giant 42-ton boulder, found out that back in the day, in the 1920s, there was an article written about it, and there was some kind of a name for that kind of a glacial deposit that involves the N-word. Uncouth speech by 2020 standards. So, to make sure that the campus was inclusive, they spent $60,000 to move the rock. In case anybody saw the rock, found out about the story, realized the word was involved in the story 100 years ago, and therefore felt like they didn't belong on campus anymore as a result because they're wrapped in bubble wrap as adults because they can't handle seeing a rock that might have had an uncouth name that nobody's heard of in a hundred years. Mm -hmm. That is purges. That justifies purging people, purging ideas, purging rocks, purging statues of Thomas Jefferson, purging statues of George Washington, Purging the culture of all four of the olds. Old culture, old habits, old customs, old ways of thinking. Just like Mao Zedong did in China. Lest anybody be reminded of the old bad culture. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same kind of program. So inclusion is purges. If you want to run a commissary, I guess a commissariat. If you want to run a Soviet council, you have to have a justification for hiring party members, you have to have an objective that the party members are shooting for, and you have to have a means for getting rid of dissidents and censoring people. Diversity, equity, and inclusion are those three pieces. Diversity is your justification to hire party members. Equity is the goal, which is socialism in a new box. 
And inclusion is the justification for which you uh, can purge ideas, censor, purge people, even purge rocks, because the rock is maybe offending somebody by virtue of nothing. And so what you're actually looking at then is, in fact, a installation of a Soviet method of operating with a perfect Mountain Bailey. It's just... <laughs> Diversity, how could you be against that? That's what you asked me. Right. It's just making sure people don't feel excluded by being rude. How could you be against that? It's just making sure that access is equal. Equal access is supposed to be what the civil rights movement was about. How could you be against that? But it's just lies is what it is. It is lies. It is lies of a very particular kind that should be called deception as in capital D, deceiver, if we're in a church talking about these things, and as an atheist, I still mean that. It's the exact kind of lie that you read about in Genesis. Mm -hmm. As I put on Twitter the other day, if you eat of the fruit, you will not surely die. But if you do, it's a good thing. Here's why. <laughs> right, right. That's, it's, it's what it boils down to. You see the same thing again and again everywhere. But diversity, equity, inclusion, commissars, Soviet, council. But, but if you're in a Christian institution or if you're involved in Christian education, is you do the same thing that you did maybe 20 years ago where what we wanted to do in Christianity is we wanted to take the best of popular culture and we wanted to Christianize it and bring it into the church. So that's where you have like Christian hard rock. So where you had you know, a hard rock group, let's say like Metallica or Van Halen or whatever the case may be, you just made Striper, right? And so you took whatever was there and then you just Christianized it. Well, you do the same thing with this program. So as opposed to just diversity, equity, inclusion, you call it kingdom diversity. So like that's what Southeastern, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary calls it, you know, Dude. kingdom diversity, kingdom inclusion, and so, so forth, is that you just sprinkle a little Christian you know, pixie dust on top of it, use a, a term like kingdom or gospel or whatever as a prefix, and then somehow it makes it all better, but it's the same thing. Now, I'm not a Christian, but if I'm not mistaken, the gospel, like literally the point of the gospel, if I'm not mistaken is that kingdom inclusion is provided by one and only one means. Correct. Which is not that BS. Right, right. Not, not through Marxism. You know, so again, it's this whole idea that you have to apply this system that we're using everywhere else, that you're using in every major corporation, that you're using in the educational system, that you're using now, you know, throughout the arts and entertainment and so forth, saying that every time that you, you make a movie, it has to be a diverse and inclusive cast, right? You have to have every single race and every single, you know, um, sexual preference and so forth included within your cast. You have to have a multiplicity of voices and so forth. You do the same thing, but you just apply it within the church itself. Well, Jarvis Williams said that we have to decolonize. Oh, that's correct. Decolonize. What is decolonizing? Well, this comes out of post-colonial mm -hmm. literature, post-colonial theory, post-colonialism, as it actually is, which very rapidly got, uh, we'll say, colonized by the Marxists and turned to their, their projects and advantages. Um, so there is a post-colonialist in Brazil uh, by the name of Paulo Freire, who you may, if you've listened to my podcast, you know who he is. If you follow my Twitter, you've, heard his, you've seen his name a bunch of times. Um, but he was a post-colonialist in the uh, 
40s and 50s, really, in Brazil. And then they got a new government. He had, they gave him this whole program of education based on his post-colonial ideas. And he's coming up with a theory of education. He was like their big education theorist guy. And they get this new government in, in the early 60s, and they're like, this guy's a crackpot. Not only did the Brazilians <laughs> tell him he couldn't be in charge of education, they said, you're out. You can't mm -hmm. be in Brazil anymore. They exiled him. So he ran to Bolivia, and the Bolivians were like, you can't come here. And they kicked him out too. And he went to Chile and he hooked up with a bunch of Marxists when he went to Chile. And for five years he studied Marxist theory. And in the 1968, the original edition of uh, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed was released in Portuguese. Uh, and then it was released again in 1970 um, in English and other languages. And what he explains in there, remember he, came, he comes from a post-colonial background. So we're going to get back to decolonize, I promise. But what he explains in there is that education has to be rethought of completely. What we, and I'm not going to go deep into Freire. Uh, I'll do that at a later date for sure. Um, or you can go listen to my 11,000 hours of podcasts about Freire <laughs> that I've done in the past like three months. But what he does is he says that everything, whether it's math, well, he says it's adult literacy. Yep. He says that you have to teach literacy. He's only literacy. But what it becomes is everything. It becomes math. It becomes whatever you're learning at church. Sunday school, et cetera, everything. But for him, it's literacy. It does, he says it actually doesn't matter if people, are when they're learning to be literate, learn to read and write. What it, mean, what it matters is if they learn to be politically literate. And the way that you're going to do that is you're going to use the curriculum, the literacy curriculum, through what he calls a generative themes model. Generative themes, themes that generate particular, let's say, feelings in people that resonate with the contexts of their lives. And so the model of education that Freire proposes is it starts off with something he calls dialogue, is you talk to the students and you data mine them, as it were, to find out what's going on in their lives, where their agitations are, where their anger is, where their con what, what the, uh, the, the cracks are within their context, and then you design which words you're going to teach them to read by, by listening to their words that they speak. So if they live in the slum, you teach them the word favela, in Portuguese, which means slum. If, they, if they're a day laborer on a farm, you teach them words about, uh, you know, whatever it is to be forced to suffer in the field. And you tailor the reading lesson. Instead of teaching them to just read, he says, you, you know, disconnected syllables like phonics we would have or would have had before, instead of this new whole word reading thing that came from Freire, you teach them, well, it actually came from Marxists before him too, but you teach them to read according to words that mean something to them so they have more engagement. They're engaged with the material. They might be more engaged with the gospel if somebody that looks like them wrote the interpretation of it. Engagement is the justification. So what decolonization of, say, the gospel or the, the you know, religious teaching or the schools or the curriculum or Shakespeare or classical music, what decolonization means is that you're removing the themes that are already present that reinforce the existing culture and you're replacing them with agitative, generative themes that will cause them to be able to enter into the process that Freire outlines, which is after you use the generative theme, you then retool, rather you teach them to read by letting them look at the word for slum and say, oh, I know what that word is, that's where I live. What you do is you walk them through how terrible the slum is and then you say, you live in the slum. All that terrible stuff is your life, and you got there because of this process, which was that you got marginalized into it, and it's the society's fault. In other words, you bring them through a Marxist cult indoctrination, and the way that you do it is by decolonizing the curriculum and putting in things that are generative to their lived experience in place of that which was there 
previously. So the decolonizing that Jarvis Williams mentioned is a process where you're intentionally going to take out that which already is there, and you're going to replace it not with a diversity of voices, but with an expertise of diversity of voices. You're going to replace it with concepts that intentionally pour water into the cracks of society so you can freeze that water and split the rock out even right. further. And meanwhile, because you're pouring something in the crack, you're like, look, we're filling it. There's a crack here. We're the ones filling it. We're the ones putting something. It freezes. Look how full it is. It's full. It's full of ice. It's, we're the ones that solved the crack of racism. We filled it with this anti-racist ice, which then melts and there's a giant fissure and the rock falls apart. That's what they're doing. That's what decolonization is, is the replacement of actual learning with generative themes that you can use in order to do the process of a Marxist cult indoctrination in the vampiric changed or turned voice of whatever it used to be. Kingdom diversity. Yep. Well, that sounds like kingdom. Okay. That's right. It sounds similar. Must be the same thing. That's what's actually happening. That's how they're, that's the process of the vampire turning the thing. And what they do is they use that context. If it's a church, you're going to go in and you're going to say, well, what, what does it mean to love thy neighbor? That's what Kathy Hochul said. Right. What does it mean to love thy neighbor? Well, it means I care about you enough where you're going to get the magic juice because we're not allowed to say the other word. Because I want you to survive this like virtually nobody did. Regardless of what you think about the truth of what she's saying, you can see what's happening there. She's now taken the meaning of love thy neighbor and turned it into something else that's now generative to a political context that she has the answer to. That's the essence of decolonization. She's decolonizing the gospel, right. what, she, what you yep, literally right. watched. She's decolonizing the gospel and replacing it with a generative theme of the uh, public health crisis that we're not allowed to say, I guess, V-word. Rhymes with Hyrus, I don't know. <laughs> Cyrus? Yes. Papyrus? There you go. It's being creative. So, does Apple that... pectin. It's horse paste. <laughs> so, I, I hope that helps some of you that I think had a few questions about what we were talking about in the presentation before. Uh, I want to make sure that I give you plenty of time to go and get something to eat and then return as well. Um, so, folks, if you take a look at your, your watches right now, it's approximately 5.51 p.m. And if you can just make it back and be in your seats by, let's say, 7.15, is that enough time for you? Okay, so we'll get started again at 7.15 with Dr. James Lindsay and his first talk on the theology of Marxism. Thank you, guys.